so thankful to be here with you this morning. Happy to be able to sort of close out this section of uh, 1 Peter. Happy to be able to um, close out this section at least temporarily on um, testing and trials. We've, we've sort of talked extensively about Christian suffering and trials and testing. Uh, if you've been around for any period of time, you've heard a good deal about that, uh, primarily because that's what the Bible says, and we go through the Bible as we see it. So we'll keep doing that. Um, but today, because we've done such sort of an extensive look through Romans, through First Peter, um, through basically every New Testament gospel or letter, um, I'm going to just do my best to speak on what the text says. I'm not going to give you an extensive thought on suffering just like I did in last week or testing or trials. So we're going to see exactly what the text says. We'll go through it hopefully rather quickly and um, I hope that it will be good for you. This last part of 1 Peter 4 was sort of uh, a three-quarter to half sermon, so but it was too much to add in the other parts, so We'll see how it goes. Um, I expect, because I'm going to do my best to speak what the Bible says, I expect it to go pretty well. Will you pray with me this morning before we begin? Father God, you are so good to us, better than we deserve, better than we could ask for, Lord. If we could write our life, if we could write our life out, if we could write out the good and the bad and the ugly, Lord, we wouldn't have written it the way you write it, and so we would miss out on countless blessings, countless opportunities to trust in you, to hope for you. We would have spoiled the narrative, Lord, but you have written our story, and you have written it beautifully, uh, and you have written it wonderfully, Lord. You have written it to where not only do we rely and trust in you if we want to succeed in this life, if we want to follow you well, but we rely and trust on the church. Um, we need you. We need the church. We need each other. And through our trials and through our testing, although it might not be the smooth sailing script that we would have written, Lord, it is a script that is beautiful indeed. You make us into an image of your son. Like we read in James, you make us to a person of character who is well equipped to do all that faces us. Lord, you scorn us, you discipline us for your glory. You chasten those that you love, Lord, so let us be a part of that discipline so that we can be under your care and your love. God, I pray that you would bless us through your word this morning. Help us to not take more from it than what it says. Help us to not take less from it than what it says, but help us to take it as it stands and apply it to our lives so that we can be brought into the image of your son. We praise you, we love you, we thank you for this day. We praise you in the name of Jesus, amen. 
Last week we began this section on 1 Peter 4 and we looked at the Christian response to testing and trial in the end times. And I started what was a two-part sermon on a Christian response to trials in the end times. And we'll, be, we'll finish the second part of that today. Now I pose this question for us. How will we respond to testing since the end of all things is at hand? Now, we have spoken on testing and trials many times, so many of the concepts that we discussed last week that we'll discuss this week are, are not new to you. As a matter of fact, I hope that as we've talked about these concepts on testing and trials over the years, I hope that they have become somewhat commonplace to you. When I say that the expectation for a Christian is that you will experience trials and testing and suffering, I hope that we're at a point now where you're not like, oh, Really? This is new to me. This is the first time I've heard this. Uh, I, my goal as your pastor is to make you unsurprisable, if that is a way to use that word in English. It's to make it to where when you read a text in Scripture, you're not like, oh my goodness, this is the first I've ever heard of this. And to sort of, in not a condescending way, but to sort of make it to where you go and when you're a part of another fellowship, you're visiting another church or whatever, um, the pastor thinks he's given some sort of like groundbreaking news and you're like, oh yeah, we, we studied about that a few years ago. Now, not in a condescending way, you don't have to be a jerk about it, but I want you as a congregation, as a church, to be unsurprised um, by the, the things that we read in the Bible because we have engrossed ourselves in them so much. And this is one of those things. I believe that one of the greatest uh, aids in the downfall of Christian growth is surprise. When you are surprised by, by life's events and life's happenings, I believe the next result is stumble is falter. But when you understand the task at hand and you understand what you have in front of you, then surprise gets met like this. With a defense ready and an offense ready to strike. So we were reminded last week that testing uh, is common to all people. Christian and non-Christian alike. Peter says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. The difference between the two is that at the end of the day, Christians have Christ. They have each other, and they have this great um, Rosetta Stone, this great roadmap for understanding suffering, for understanding Trials and non-Christians, do you know what they have? They have trials and testing and trouble, and the only answer is self-help. They can look to other non-Christians, they can look to themselves, but it's only these motivational speeches and TED Talks and self-help that don't get you through. We have Christ, and Christ is God, and he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, that without the Spirit of God, we cannot overcome anything, but with the Spirit of God, there is no obstacle too large in our life to overcome, to God be the glory. 
Testing is common for all people, but especially for Christians, so it shouldn't be a surprise. Another concept we discussed is that testing should be viewed joyously, and it shouldn't be a surprise that Christ, that God through Christ and the Spirit asks you to view testing joyously. Why? Because when we are tested and we are tried as Christians, we get to share in what Christ has already experienced. And when we share in what Christ has already experienced, that signifies, again, our union with him, our bond with him, which strengthens our understanding that we belong to him. We should meet trials joyously because our Savior has already experienced that. And if we experience that as a Christian, as a faithful Christian, it is proof that we are in Him. And more importantly, He is in us. And even though we are tested now, friends, another reason why we should face these trials with great joy is because testing now in faith means no testing later. We are tested now. We are tried now as Christians because it is God's plan to refine and to grow the church. But after that, when we are with him, we are with him forever. The testing is over. The trials are over. No condemnation to those who are in Christ. Those without Christ, they face trials now. And guess what? It doesn't end. Face trials now without God. Face them later, even greater without God. And I don't say that so as Christians we can be like, yeah, the non-Christians are getting what they deserve. I say that as, as an exhortation to us to see every soul as valuable and every soul as desperately needy of a Savior and every soul on a train to condemnation if someone doesn't intervene. We should never look at the condemnation of the lost and think they are getting what they deserve. We should look at the condemnation of the lost and say, without Christ, so am I. Those without Christ, they are just beginning on a long road of trials. And the only people able to intervene for effective change and hope in their life are people who have the Spirit of God. That is you and I. So whenever you hear me say, their judgment is later, don't be like, that's right. Their judgment's later. Mourn. Weep. Beg and plead to God for their salvation. Intervene on behalf of the Spirit of God. The last point we saw Peter make from verses 12 through 14 is that testing is a blessing from the Lord. Because we have an opportunity to glorify God with our life. And the Spirit of God indwells in us and continually proves His faithfulness in our suffering. When we are tested as believers and we do not 
falter or if we falter but we regain that and pursue the Lord, we are a shining light. I said it last week like this and I mean it figuratively but also I mean as literal as you can be. We, like the Shekinah glory that fell on the tabernacle, that was in the cloud and the fire that led the Israelites out of Egypt, we too are a representation of that glory when we suffer well to the glory of the Lord. Today I want to finish 1 Peter 4. I want to look deeper into the section on suffering and trials. 1 Peter 4, verses 15 through 19. We'll finish out 1 Peter 4. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Something clear that we have seen from these passages is that suffering will come our way inevitably. How we respond to suffering is so telling as it pertains to our trust in the Lord, but also our spiritual health and and growth. A spiritually immature believer faces trials and they revert back to their old self. They feel hopeless. They feel helpless. They might even blame God. They might say things like, I'm just not strong enough to get through this. Or, I just can't conquer this temptation. They usually see a giant regression in their faith. And it even sometimes seems like all progress is lost. But I would like to tell you, friends, if that's where you find yourself, all hope and progress is not lost. I believe this to be true with all my heart. The first step back toward the Lord, the first step back of a, of a, of a repentive heart is greater in most cases than all the steps you took away. Even if it doesn't reverse all of the damage, it puts you in the hands of God, which gets you to a point of recovery, which gives you, gets you to a point of renewal, of growth. So if you find yourself being a spiritually immature person who has faced, uh, who has faced trial and struggles and it knocked you off your feet and it caused you to regress, you need to understand the first step to- back towards God, it's it. It revives you and renews you more than the steps away killed you. The spiritually maturing person, that's another response to testing and trials. They see trials as something from the Lord. And they see them as an opportunity to grow. They show little to no regression or maybe even some spiritual growth during testing. That's the spiritually maturing person. 
And the spiritually mature person sees testing as already conquered by Christ and as a part of life. And the response he makes is a means to worship God. And he almost always grows significantly. And as a result, those around him grow also. This doesn't mean that he is not knocked back a little bit by trials and testing also. It just means that his trials and testing don't knock him down. Don't knock him away from his purpose and goals. This person is the type of person that we should all hope to be. We should all be aiming toward. We all face testing and trials, and that often leads to suffering. But not all suffering is equal, and that's how Peter ends 1 Peter 4, 15-19. Not all suffering is equal. Not all suffering displays the Shekinah, the, the light, the glory of the Lord. Not all suffering qualifies for one of God's blessings. So let's finish uh, today with uh, two questions. One will be the main way we spend our time, and the last will be... Um, um, our conclusion. Hey, TJ, can you go get me a cup of water, please? Thank you. Uh, so this, this is the second point of the sermon. Uh, the end of all things is at hand. This is the second point from continuing from last week. Will you suffer well? Will you suffer well? This is found in verses 15 and 17, 15 through 17. Will you suffer well. Suffering is inevitable. I know that I haven't said that very many times in this sermon or in the past, but just in case you missed it, the one or two to 10, 15 times I've said it, suffering is inevitable. Will you suffer well? Peter begins this section with the words, but let none of you suffer. Thank you. But let none of you suffer. The word but here or for is a connecting phrase that connects us back to verses 12 through 14. The word lets us know that the promises of verses 12 through 14 are conditional. The promises of verses 12 through 14 are conditional upon the fact or conditioned upon the fact that you are serving well, that you are uh, facing trials well. The promise of the Holy Spirit's help in 12 through 14. The promise of being a shining light of God's glory. The promise of being able to rejoice and be blessed in suffering. All are conditioned upon the fact that you face trials and suffering well and for the right reasons. Peter says, but let none of you suffer as. And then he goes on to mention four types of sins. Now, before I list these, you need to know that Peter is making a case for general holiness. He is using these four sins not as like the four uh, most egregious sins, but as the spectrum. The worst type of sin and what you might consider the least type of sin. He's using it as a spectrum. All of these sins, you might also note, are sins that directly affect other people. Okay, so if I do something that no one else, and technically all sins direct, directly affect other people. If you are doing personal sins that don't uh, directly 
cause harm to someone, it still causes harm to someone because it stunts your spiritual growth, which other people are depending on. So that was a side sermon. Every sin we commit directly affects other people. But some sins directly in first person affect other people. And all four of these type sins are sins that affect other people. Now, if you do something that directly, directly affects other people, what should you expect in response? Maybe hostility. Maybe a response, maybe punishment, maybe uh, you know punishment for a crime, if, especially if it's criminal that that you do. But these four are covering a vast spectrum of sins that hurt other people. I know at times we look at the Bible and think, uh, "Oh, they, the Christians back in the day, they had it so." So simple. If I could have just been back there. Like, they had Jesus. He was right there. If I could have just been around Jesus, I would have been able to get this Christian life thing right. You know what else Peter's doing here? He's not only showing us a spectrum of sin, but he's showing us that even the early church needed a reminder to stop doing dumb things. The early church needed a reminder to walk in faith. I mean, they had Jesus, folks. We tend to think of like the early church as like superhumans. Like I'm, maybe it's just me, but I do. It's like, oh man, if we could get things back to the way the early church was. And that's part of the reason why we created Vintage was to throw out a lot of the unnecessary stuff and to, and to just cling to the good stuff. But it, we, we tend to think if we could just get back there, if we could just get back to what it was like to be in close to Jesus. But Peter here is reminding, now I don't think murder and stealing was going on in the church. Probably maybe some stealing, probably not murdering. But Peter is reminding them, Peter is exhorting them not to be sinful people. And certainly not to expect good things to come when we suffer because of our sin. So Peter mentions murder and stealing first. He tells the Christians, which I believe, I think this would have been obvious to them. I think these churches, it would have been obvious. Uh, they probably wouldn't have been murderers. They probably wouldn't be stealing. Now, they might have done that whole, if you do it in your heart thing, probably. They probably would have done those. If you hate a brother, you've murdered him, you know, kind of thing. But they probably wouldn't have been murdering and They probably wouldn't have been stealing. But he tells these Christians, don't be a murderer. Don't be a thief. Now, both of these drastically harm other people, and they could have been punished by death. In ancient times, they would have cut off body parts of a person uh, caught stealing. As a matter of fact, it's how I remembered what number don't steal is on the Ten Commandments, because I think about my fingers getting cut off. So it's how I remember that. Anyway, sorry. Um, that's how I remember don't steal, because they would cut off body parts back in the day if you stole. So... Uh, these crimes, these top end of the spectrum crimes would have been punishable because not only were they against somebody and hurt somebody, but they were criminal. So Peter goes on to say, uh, if you hurt someone first, or if you hurt someone away in a, in a way that leads to injury or death, don't go to your punishment singing victory in Jesus. Or, or we shall overcome. One of the biggest problems I see in Christians, especially at oftentimes newer Christians, is the idea that your past doesn't follow you. Yes, if you repent and trust in Jesus, you are 
forgiven. And you are pulled out of your past. But also, friends, we need to understand that our past follows us. And that is not God's condemnation. That is consequences that everyone, every single human faces. So when the consequence of sin comes your way, even if it's delayed or hard to trace back to its origin, what sin was this? Don't complain to God about why he is letting it happen. And, and certainly don't consider yourself a martyr along the way to punishment. Peter says, if you're sinning, especially in murdering and, and stealing, don't praise God for the punishment that's coming your way. Don't wonder why the punishment is coming your way, but understand it is the consequence of your own actions. He goes on from those two egregious evils to the word evildoer. He says, murder, stealing, evildoer. The word here for evildoer signifies a person who does general evil. I believe this is a person whose evil doing uh, affects others. It's, it's the person who does general evil, but especially the one whose evil has consequences upon others' lives. Peter is saying that if you generally find yourself in opposition with most people, know that that should tell you something. Don't go and think, well, everyone else has a problem with me. I guess it's everyone else who has the problem. We are reminded again that the early Christians needed to hear this. They needed to be exhorted to abstain from actions that harmed others and actions that harmed themselves. And when they did these sinful actions, they needed, they needed to be reminded that it was not God. It was not God on their side, but it was instead they were facing the consequences of their sin. Peter gives a fourth sin that brings hostility towards us. The ESV uses the word meddler here, but there are actually a few possibilities for meaning. Now, I... Uh, one would be the general sense of meddler. That's someone who is always in other people's affairs uh, that are not really any of their concern. One of the big reasons that I intentionally forget news uh, about people is because I don't want to accidentally spill the beans. Someone tells me something and they're like, don't tell anyone. I'm like, I just forgot it. Seriously, I try to forget it. And then later someone will, someone will tell Anna and they'll be like, Bryce didn't tell you? And she, I'll be like, no, you told me not to tell anyone, so I forgot. So I didn't even tell her. I've been caught in situations one too many times where I inserted myself into a situation and um, it didn't go well. And all it brings is hostility towards you, hostility between you and what is probably multiple people, and at the end of the day, you are going to end up being the bad guy. Now, while meddling doesn't seem like one of the worst sins, the problem with a meddler is they are almost always meddling with partial information. If you want to be someone who helps someone get through something or work through an issue, you help them with the full spectrum of information. A meddler meddles with partial information. And so even to their best effort, they don't usually get the story right. Even with their best effort, they don't have the context necessary to help. To give advice about what somebody else has happened to them or what somebody else is doing or how they've treated someone else. A meddler is not a first-hand 
witness or a first-hand person. And so they almost always operate with second-hand information. And almost always the result is trouble within that group. And it happens to be that if that trouble is within the body of Christ, it is amplified because it is the opposite of what we were supposed to do. So we don't meddle. Now, for those of you who think, uh, for those of you who are, have no problem agreeing with me, and you're like, meddling is terrible, remember, someone caring about you and inserting themselves into your life, if you're a part of this church, it's not meddling. They also call that love. So there is a fine line between meddling and love. Love comes with the full context and the full information and comes with equity that you've put into someone's life. Meddling comes with half context and half information and almost never helps. Don't act like a martyr if you're a meddler. There's another thought here. The word for meddler is allotriepiscopos in the Greek. Allotriepiscopos. This is one of the only occurrences in the New Testament for this word. And, and it's someone who watches over another person's affairs. So it could also mean someone who defrauds someone else. Someone who has... Uh, care over someone's affairs and takes advantage of that. Or it could mean a revolutionary. It could mean someone who is trying to stunt the movement and the action of the government. Now, I think it's important to take stands in certain government and social issues, but if you take a stand in a government, governmental and a social issue and you get blowback from that, don't be like, Look at me, Lord, I am your martyr. That's not, that's not what you're doing. You might be Trump's martyr, or you might be Biden's martyr, or you might be some other politician's martyr, but you're not, you're not a martyr of the Lord. Even if it's something right, when you stand up in a political arena, you better expect what you get and be okay with it or be quiet. Sometimes both. I'm not going to go into all the details of these things. I was just trying to give you a taste of that. But in each instance, the result is the same. If you stir the pot for anything else other than Christ, don't act like you're taking one for the Christian team when you suffer. You are suffering for yourself. Verse 16 goes on to say, yet if. The yet if is basically saying, when you suffer. Yet if you suffer, when you suffer, as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Peter here uses an interesting word. Do you know what the interesting word in verse 16 is? Do you know? You've probably been taught this. It's not your question. The interesting word is Christian. Do you know there's only two occurrences of Christian in the Bible? One is to explain how the name Christian came about, and the other is here. I don't know if you know this, but Christian was not the most popular name. It was not the chosen name amongst believers. Believers didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves the brotherhood or brethren or, or another term, but they did not call themselves Christians. That word was used in Acts 11.26 from the outsiders of Antioch. They gave Christians a name to distinguish them from the rest of the group. But by the time Peter wrote this, the name had become one of derision. People were hated for being Christians. Christians didn't call themselves Christians. But here Peter says, when you suffer for acting like Christ and living well and someone calls you a Christian, even if they mean it derogatorily, wear that name proudly. 
wear that name proudly. It makes me think of a few ways that we've seen this happen. Do you remember when Hillary Clinton called Donald Trump supporters deplorables? Now, again, in no way am I uh, uh, comparing Donald Trump or Donald Trump supporters to the Christian faith, except to say what happened was those deplorables, they made t-shirts, they made hats, they wore it proudly. Most recently, one of the politicians called Donald Trump supporters ultra MAGA, and now you have like people wearing ultra MAGA hats and shirts everywhere. They embraced it. When I was, a, when I was very young, I created an email address called TigerHigh5552 at AOL.com. I still have that email address. It's still active. TigerHigh5552 at AOL.com. You know why I did that? Because I've been a Memphis Tiger fan my whole life. And people tried to make fun of Memphis by calling it Tiger High as if it were an inferior university. And so uh, I named my email Tiger High so I could be like, all right, dude, what you got now? Embrace it. Friends, I want to tell you, too many people in this room and too many people in our churches have gone far too long trying to explain away the actions and the name Christ, the name Christian, instead of embracing it. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to follow Christ, you shouldn't have to explain me away when I preach the word. You shouldn't feel the necessity to soften the blow for your non-Christian friends when the word of God is spoken. Because I want to tell you, for those that need faith, sometimes getting punched in the face is all that does it. Now again, I'm not saying we should do that with our words. I'm saying that the gospel is, that, is the thing that does that. I'm not saying we should be a jerk about the way we do it. I'm saying the gospel is the way we do that. And so many Christians spend more time trying to explain away the, thing of, the things of being a Christian instead of just saying, yep, that's what I am. Now, we can talk about that more. We can talk about that more, and we can work through that, and I can, I can work through some of the misunderstandings of Christianity with you, and I can help you with that, but I am not going to reject in essence, who I am. And if you want to use Christian as a derogatory slang, slang uh, term, if you want to use Bible thumper as a derogatory term for me, if you want to use hellfire and brimstone preacher as a derogatory term for me, that's fine. But I embrace it. Because guess what? It's what I am. It's what I am. If you want to tell me I'm on the wrong side of history, that's fine. Because I know confidently that I serve the God who writes history. When you suffer for the action of being a Christian and the struggles of being associated with the name of Christian, wear it proudly. If you suffer for the name of murderer, wear it with shame. If you suffer for the name of thief, gossip, meddler. If you suffer for the name of evildoer, wear it with shame. But if you suffer for the name of Christ and as a Christian, wear it proudly wear it with honor when people belittle creationism i say that is a tenet of my faith i can defend it and i wear it proudly when people when people belittle with my stance on abortion or other controversial social subjects i don't social subjects i don't shrink away i'm not embarrassed that i support life i'm not embarrassed that i support what the bible says 
Now, a key factor in that is you have to be able to, you have to study to a point where you can defend your stance. You can't just take a stance without foundation. I wear it as a badge of honor. Not in a condescending way, not in a mean way, but you think I'm not like you? Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I'm standing out. I'm doing something right. Peter is saying when you bear that name and you live up to that name, you are glorifying God in that name. So don't suffer for the right reasons, but suffer for the actions and the name of Christ that proudly gives you the the label Christian. In verse 17, Peter goes, on back, Peter goes back to the idea that he introduced in the earlier passages. The idea of the refiner's fire. And he uses a few Old Testament passages as his guide. We read one of them this morning already. Uh, and you can look at them later. But one of them is uh, Ezekiel 9. And it appears that the premise for... Part of the premise for 1 Peter 4 comes from Ezekiel 9. And this is the Lord enacting judgment for Israel for abandoning him and abandoning the faith. In this passage, the Lord is judging a whole swath of people, people that are a part of his chosen people. But Malachi 3, which uh, Lexi read earlier, is more of a, a verse that is mirroring what we're reading in 1 Peter, 3, uh, 1 Peter 4. So uh, Malachi 3 and uh, Ezekiel 9. Verse 17 really presents us with an interesting thought. Peter says, at a time or we're at a time or a season of judgment. A time or a season of ju- judgment begins, meaning judgment has started because of the appearing of Christ. Not only has judgment started, but judgment begins at the household of God, which is the final nail in the coffin of the idea of health, wealth, and fluffy unicorn cloud playland for Christians. The whole everything is wonderful. Just come to Christ. He loves you, accepts you. Everything will be wonderful. All your dreams will come true. Peter says the judgment of God begins at the house of God. But unlike the Ezra passage, the judgment is enacted so that we might be saved from ourselves and that we might be refined and walk more like Christ. The judgment of God begins at the house of God. Where is the house of God? Where is the house of God? It's in the heart of man. This is the house of God today because we are here together. That's right. This is the house of God today because we are here together. But the house of God is in the heart of man. The the judgment of God begins with you. This has totally flipped my understanding on judgment. And I have said to you in the past, we will be judged for what we do. There is no condemnation, but Christians will be judged for what they do. And I don't understand how that's going to happen. Now I do. Now I do. The testing and the trials of this life are part of the judgment of sin. And it starts at the house of God. What I think Peter is saying is, is that God uses testing and trials most as a means of growth for individual believers. You need to know this. A person who is not tested is not worthy to hold greater roles and rewards. If we are not tested, we are not worthy to hold greater roles and rewards. 
Uh, I find it interesting, and this is not um, always the case, but it's mostly the case. The second iteration of a human who tries to do what their father did or their mother did is almost always worse. So like Charles Stanley, who just passed away, was pretty good. Andy Stanley is terrible. Okay? What might have happened is thing Andy didn't face what Charles faced to get him to the point that he was at. It might have been that Andy didn't face the trials and the struggles and the different testing that Charles faced to get him where he was. You've seen it in multiple instances. I'll name one more. I can name probably a dozen just off the top of my head. Jerry Falwell, senior, was okay. He was okay. Jerry Falwell, Jr., not okay. Not okay. From what I hear, Joel Osteen's dad, okay. Joel Osteen, not okay. Not okay. What happens is, oftentimes, people are given things without testing and without trial, and they just don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to win. They don't know how to handle victory, how to handle not being prideful when things come their way. And another thing we need to understand is a church tested is the true church. Christians, the way we grow stronger is by being tested. And also, it's the way the church is refined. If a person is tested and they can't continue following God, they were not with us in the first place. Peter goes on to remind us in verses 17 and 18 that the fate of an unbeliever will be much worse than the fate of Christians. If God chases and disciplines those he loves, how much more will he do that to those who reject him? One quick point he says is that the righteous are scarcely saved. I don't think he's saying that there won't be many people saved. I think what he is saying is, is that the narrow path leads to life and few will find it, but that number will still be a countless number. What he's saying is that it'll, it will just be very difficult along that narrow path. He's quoting an Old Testament proverb that's found in the Septuagint that's basically saying, with great difficulty and refining, the righteous will be saved. It won't come easily for the righteous, but it still happens. So to summarize sort of 12 through 18, Peter is telling us that we are going to suffer, that we need to suffer well because of the faithfulness of God. We need to suffer well. We suffer well when it's because of being faithful to God and not because of our sin. He's saying if you suffer because of sin, you should understand why you suffer and not glory in it. But if you suffer for the sake of Christ, you should wear that badge with honor because it's not you who is able to do it, but it is Christ. And he says the judgment of God begins with Christians and it is on earth and only on earth and it is for their spiritual growth. I have one more thing I want to tell you, and I'm going to close with this. It's, it's the third point. I can promise you I won't spend as much time on this point. We'll just sort of conclude with this idea. The end of all things is at hand. Will you suffer well? Will you suffer in faith? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Since everyone suffers... Since everyone is a part of God, since suffering is a part of God's plans for Christians, 
It's a part of his plan for them to face testing and trial and to face it first. And since we are promised good in the end, how will you respond? Friends, you, don't, uh, you do not face testing and trials and suffering by chance or by accident, but by the divine will of God. Peter says, let those who suffer according to God's will. You may find it odd that God would cause you to suffer, but I find it good. I find it good because we are never out of his hand. He disciplines us and he corrects us, but he does not destroy us. He refines us for growth so that we are ready for the inheritance to come. He disciplines us, but he does not destroy us. He models what good parenting should look like. Stern, strict, consistent discipline that breeds spiritual growth but not destruction. Your goal is to not break your children. Your goal is to break the will of your children to disobey you and the Lord, but not break them as humans, not break their spirit, their personality. This is the way God disciplines us. He puts us down so that he can lift us up and make us new. And in a sort of um, way off the godly trail. It's what the military does to military, uh, to active, whatever they're called, soldiers, whatever, sorry. Military personnel, that'll work. It reminds me of Psalm 30 when I think about temporary suffering of this life. Psalm 30 says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O oh Lord, my God, I cried for, to you for help, and you have healed me. O oh Lord, you have brought me up. You have brought my soul up out of Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O oh you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O oh Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid my, you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord. Be my helper. You have turned me from, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing, and you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So we suffer according to God's will. What do we do with that knowledge? Peter says, entrust our soul to your faithful creator. Entrust your soul to your faithful creator. The word entrust here is different than just faith. And I'll close with this idea it's different than just faith. It's not like trusting in. It's not like transferring your trust. It is literally, the word trust used here is literally handing something over for safekeeping. Handing something over for safekeeping. You know what Peter is saying? Peter is saying, when you aren't well enough to handle the peace and the joy 
and the good things that God has given in your life, when you are facing trials so great that you can't handle it properly, hand it over to the Lord and he will keep it safe. If you are not strong enough to face the trials that are coming your way, if the temptation in your life abounds and you don't have the strength, hand it over to the Lord for safekeeping. Will you suffer in faith? Will you face trials and testing in faith? The only way we make it through to the end is to give our soul, our life, our well-being to the God who made us, who saves us, and who keeps us. Friends, we serve the God of the universe who created and sustains all things. Don't let your testing and your trials run you. Don't let them destroy the progress you have made in faith. Yet entrust your soul to the faithful creator who cares for you, who keeps you, and will absolutely, definitively, and objectively see you through. Pray with me today. Lord, we love you so much. We don't deserve the type of love that you give us, the love that disciplines, the love that that chastens us, Lord, but the love that also lifts us up and brings us into a new form, a new creation. Lord, would you refine us? And as you refine us, would you make us aware of your presence so that we trust you, so that we continue day in, day out, give our life to you? Lord, we love you so much. We cannot do it without you. Help us to see our neediness and depend on you more and more every day of our lives. It is in the precious, mighty, and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.